morning, everybody. Man, what a morning. What a morning. You know, I planned to be here at 8 o'clock and got here at 8.15. And like most of us, we like to make a lot of plans. You know, we make plans for everything. You know, you're sitting here because you had some kind of plan in your life which made you successful enough to have your own car, your own home, you have kids, your wife, and everything else. But you discovered something like I have discovered something. Planning is good. I'm married to a planner. I love planning, sort of. Plans are great, but reality is greater. <laughs> reality is greater than our plans. Reality always wins. And so sometimes things don't turn out the way we have planned them to go. And sometimes it's because what other people have done, losing power cords and things like that. And sometimes it's things that we have done. And at the end of the day, what it means is that some of our dreams won't come true. Worse, some of our dreams can't come true. We may not live a happily ever after life. And that's important. We may never get a chance or the opportunity to walk a daughter down the aisle. We may not have to purchase that extra crib. Your second marriage is starting to feel like your first marriage. Maybe that prodigal son isn't coming back home. Maybe that prodigal daughter is not coming back. Maybe you're not getting into that school. Maybe you're not getting that job. He's going to marry her anyway. She's going to marry him anyway. Looks like money is always going to be tight. Looks like that dream job really isn't the dream job I thought it was going to be. And when we begin to realize that our dreams aren't coming true, what happens is that there's this internal sense of panic. And there's this internal sense of God. And, and the panic sometimes comes from the belief that God promised us these things. God owes us these things. I raised him right. I followed your rules. We, we behaved the right way. We waited. And, and, and then, isn't there this cause and effect? Isn't there this you know, reaping and sowing that you guys keep telling us about? And realizing your dreams aren't coming true. Realizing your dreams can't come true. But you see other people's dreams come true. It's almost as if God has granted somebody else your wish. Right. You ever feel that way? Yeah. And so today our story of David is going to answer for us, what do we do when our dreams don't come true? What do we do when our dreams can't come through? You know, when David was in his 20s, under the crazy leadership of King Saul, and we've been going over that in the series, David realized early on that his dreams weren't going to come true. David is on the run. He's in the wilderness. His life's upside down, and he does what many of us do when we're caught in this situation. He panics. He makes bad decision after bad decision. People die, and then years later, he becomes king. And as king, King David would undermine his own dreams from coming true. And the lesson he learned in that season of his life is the lesson for us all this morning. 
22 years later, after David had become king, he's in his 50s. Now, you're thinking 50 is not so bad. 50 in the ancient world was old. I mean, your teeth started falling out. You started to smell bad. I mean, it's awful. Now at 50s, we can, we, can, we, can, we can make it look 40. You know what I'm saying? Back then, you couldn't do that. Reality was setting in. You know, he's not the cool King David. He's not the guy that killed Goliath anymore. He's old. King David is old. Not you guys. You guys are good. You guys got makeup. And in his 50s, his men go off to war, and he doesn't go. And we're not told why, but he, get, he gets up one evening on his rooftop of his palace, and he looks down, and he sees a woman bathing, and her name is Bathsheba. And he, so he calls his servant and says, hey, who is that? Oh, that's, Bathsheba. that's Bathsheba. That's Uriah the Hittite, your commander's wife. He goes, bring her up. Now, remember, Samuel tried to tell the people of Israel about having a king. He tried to warn them. He was saying, you don't want a king. Because when you have a king, you don't tell the king no. You can tell the priest no. You can tell the prophet no. You can tell other people no. The judge no. But you don't tell the king no. So she, he, he, the servants bring her up. David sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. And then David tries to fix the situation. Bring Uriah back from the battlefield. Brings Uriah back. Uriah has him over to the palace. He fills him up with wine, gets him drunk. All right, Uriah, now go home and be with your wife. And Uriah leaves the palace and doesn't go home, and he sleeps because Uriah is a commander of men. My men are dying. My men are in battle. I will not go home and be comforted. I will sleep here. And he sleeps outside the palace. So David realizes this and goes, man, Uriah, come on over again. Let's do this again. Gets him drunk again. Fills him up, says, Uriah, your house is three blocks to make a right turn and go home. But Uriah does not go home. Uriah is a man of honor. He sleeps outside the palace. And David tries again to get him drunk, and it doesn't work. So King David goes, calls, sends a, writes a letter to Joab, the commander, the general out in the battlefield. He says, listen, I'm going to send Uriah back to you. And I want you to go and put him where the fighting is the fiercest, what's deadly. And then I want you to withdraw and leave him there by himself. And so the letter is given to, to Uriah, and Uriah carries the letter, his own death sentence, carries it to Joab. Joab opens it, and again, you don't tell the king no. So he puts Uriah in the fiercest part of the battle. He withdraws. And Uriah is killed in battle. And Bathsheba's mourning, and she's pregnant with David's child. And, and then David, he, you know, he goes, I know what, I'm going to marry Bathsheba. So it appears that it's my child. And he marries her. And he seems to manage the outcome. Except when you live in a palace with many servants, there are no secrets. The palace walls can talk. When you have hundreds and hundreds of servants there, or hundreds and hundreds of roommates there, there are no secrets. And Nathan the prophet comes to see David, and he tells him this fictitious story about a guy in the story, and David gets all stirred up about this guy in the story, and Nathan tells him, well, you're that guy! And David is broken. He's like, Mwah! and he allows the law to break him. He's like, man, this is awful. 
And David is just sitting there. This is important because for all of us to understand, every sin, every sin that we commit comes prepackaged with a consequence. It's prepackaged. Every penalty comes prepackaged. And so God says to David, through the Nathan, the prophet, out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before the very eyes, your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before Israel. God says, David, you're the king. You're accountable. You're accountable to the entire nation of Israel. Everyone's going to know about this. And this, when you read it, it just sounds overwhelming. But David says something so powerful. He says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned. You know, David never confused who the real king was. And then, the Lord, and then Nathan said, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. Even though David was king and he was a flawed man, he never confused himself with who the real king was. And he never abandoned God's law because usually when kings go south, they just throw away the book and they lead on their own emotion. Not David. He would allow, he would break the law, but he would allow the, he would allow the law to break him. And I was fascinated about the study of David. And he was willing to acknowledge his sin and surrender to the will of God. And last week's sermon was God's will, God's way, and in God's time. But this is going to be an unavoidable consequence in what he did with Bathsheba. Because he killed an innocent man. You tried to cover it up. You tried to lie to the entire nation. And so a year goes by, and nothing happens. Two years goes by, nothing happens. Five years go by, nothing. Seven years go by. Finally, 10 years go by. And this consequence takes hold and it turns David's world upside down. David's oldest son, his name is Amnon. What a fascinating Bible study this was. His oldest son is named Amnon and he is the heir to the throne. He is the firstborn. And Amnon was consumed with lust over his half-sister Tamar. I mean, the irony is so thick here in the story. Here's David Bathsheba lusting, and what is Amnon struggling with? Struggling with? Lust himself. Hmm, I wonder what he saw in the palace. Amnon and Tamar, they shared one parent. And Amnon just can't get Tamar out of his mind. He's in love. He's infatuated. And Tamar's like, doesn't even know he exists. And, and finally, he pretends to be sick. And his family's worries, and you know, I'm sick. Hey, can you send Tamar? Can she make a special meal for me? And he asked King David, can she do that? And King's like, okay, fine. Let her, let her make the meal. So she comes in. She makes the meal. And then Amnon springs on her and says, come to bed with me. And he confesses, I'm not really sick. I just love you. Come to bed with me. And he's begging her, come to bed with me. And she resists him, and she says, no, my brother. Don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. 
Don't do this wicked thing. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. And this next verse I'm going to show you is so gut-wrenching that the biographers of the Bible, they don't hold back the details. He, then Amnon hated her with an intense hatred. And in fact, he hated her more than he loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. And, and she is devastated. Because she, growing up in that culture, now realizes and knows that I will never marry again. I will never be able to get married. Her dreams are dashed. Raped women don't get married in that culture. They are destitute. And there is Tamar, devastated, because there are no secrets in the palace. And when King David finds out what his oldest son, the heir to the throne, has done to his daughter, he is absolutely furious. And you know what he does? Absolutely nothing. We're left to guess why. What? Do something. Well, think about it. David has lost his moral authority. Who is David to tell anyone how to manage their private life? He's lost it. And so David does nothing. So now we're introduced to David's third son. His name is Absalom. Now I believe his second son somehow has died or is out, way so out of the picture that he's just gone. I believe he's died. And so Absalom is next in line to become king. And Absalom is Tamar's brother by the same parents. And so Absalom takes Tamar into his home because she's destitute. And so Absalom, he does nothing. He says nothing. He acts as if nothing has happened. One year goes by, does nothing. The second year goes by, he wants to throw a party. He's so shrewd, this guy, Absalom. He invites his entire family over. Hey, Dad, David, would you come to the party? No, son, it's a burden. I can't show up. Just have the party without me. Can I invite my brothers? Yeah, fine, invite your brothers. So he has all his brothers come over to his pad. He has them all there, and he gives them a, a bunch of wine. Drink, keep drinking and drinking. And he's watching Amnon. And he's making sure Amnon's drinking a lot. And when Amnon is drunk, he gives a signal to his men to slaughter him on the spot in front of his brothers. And so Amnon is laying there dead. This stuff's in the Bible, guys. Isn't it amazing? I mean, forget cable. You can binge on these chapters. Binge all day on this stuff. I'm giving you a season worth of stuff in 35 minutes here, guys. Go back and read There's more details. It's fascinating. So Absalom, you know, he, has, he flees. He runs. And when King David finds out that his oldest son has been killed by his favorite son, we find that out later in the story, his favorite son, King David does nothing. Life goes on. What an amazing military man, a heart of God. Man, but what a terrible parent. Let's just be honest. What a great man we honor, but his parenting skills are lacking here. Does nothing. I mean, every time I read this story, 
and I feel terrible in my life, I just open the Bible and go, I feel much better about my life. I feel so much better. I'm like, I'm not doing that bad. I, I, I want encouragement. That's why we should read the Bible, just to get encouraged going, oh, that's crazy. And three years go by, and guess what King David does? He starts to miss Absalom, the guy who murdered his firstborn. I miss him. And so there's this little scheme that, that Joab sends a woman to tell David a story. David seems to like stories. And every time they tell a story, he's in the story, and he doesn't know he's in the story until the end. They're going, hey, you're that guy. And he goes, oh, oh, I'm that guy. So he invites, invites Absalom back to Jerusalem. But when he invites him back, he refuses to see him. And so Absalom tries to talk to the king. He's trying. He's, hey, I want to talk to my dad. But David ignores him. So for two years, David doesn't talk to Absalom at all. And Absalom gets angry. And he gets mad. Why'd you bring me back here? I feel like I'm on house arrest. And so what, what, what Absalom does, he goes, you know what? I'm going to get my father's attention. I'm going to go to my neighbor's, my neighbor is Joab. I'm going to go burn his farm. And he burns his farm to the ground. And Joab goes, what are you doing? I'm just trying to get your attention. And so Joab goes, what do you want? Go tell my dad that I want to see him. And so Joab goes, fine. David, you got to see your son. He's burning down the farms. And so Joab arranges the meeting, and David sees Absalom, puts his hand on him. He kisses him. It's kind of a David's way of saying, hey, we're good. We're forgiven. It's all, it's all going to be all right. And he, David really believes that the relationship is restored. But it is not. As best as I can tell, David doesn't speak with Absalom. And so he is angry. So Absalom decides, I'm going to overthrow my father and take the throne for myself. And perhaps he thought, well, it's mine anyway. I'm next in line. I just want it now. And so Absalom's so shrewd. He gets up every morning, really early, and he goes outside the city gates. And people would come from far distance just to kind of get, get, get their justice, get their justice for a cause from David, but sometimes it takes weeks. Sometimes it takes months to see the king. So Absalom set up a little court right there. He goes, hey, I'll help you. I'll help you. I'm the king's son. I'm next in line. I'll help you. And so Absalom does that day after day, and he sees people, and he does it for four years. And people start to see how smart he is, how wise he is. And the text says this, he stole the hearts of all the people of Israel. Man, the Bible has some amazing stories, huh? I mean, this is Game of Thrones right here. <laughs> Save the money, open the Bible. Should I, should I go on? Yeah. Okay, let's go on. Let's go let's do it. So he sends these messengers out into these cities of, uh, of, the, of all the tribes of Israel. And, and the messengers, on a certain time, on a certain day, um, you're going to go out. He says, throughout the tribes of Israel, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. You know, there are no phones, there's no emails. So back then, people believed what was shouted sometimes. And perhaps they said, David's dead. Maybe they said, hey, David, give your throne to Absalom. But remember, Absalom, had ha he has the heart of the people. So when his name came up, it wasn't like, it was like, oh, man, that's awesome. And the people rejoiced when they heard that news. Though it hadn't actually happened. So 16 years later, after Bathsheba and David incident, David's world is about to be turned upside down. 
It already is in many ways. His first son got murdered, and his favorite son instigates a coup. And the messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. That is so devastating to hear. The people that supposedly had loved David now have given their hearts to someone else. And then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. I mean, David's like, if I try to defend the city and he overtakes us, he might think everyone else in the city is with me and he'll kill everybody. So David abandons the throne to save the city. And once again, once again, David is a fugitive. He finds himself running from the place he considers home, running from the people who supposedly love him. But this time he's not 22. He's in his early 60s. This is not the dream. This is not supposed to happen. I'm sure David had plans and dreams when he was a shepherd boy about what's it going to be like for his future. And his dreams didn't come true. And in some ways, they're not coming true. They can't come true. And this is where our lives intersect with the Bible. There we are. We're frustrated. We're angry. Where's God? I've been praying about this for so long. I put my dreams in his hands. What's the point? Why should I try? Where is God? I raised him right, didn't I? Now look at the way they're treating me. I was told if I was honest, good things happen if you're honest. Why well, I lost my job for being honest. And this is the point, when we, when we get to this point, this is the point we begin to hurt ourselves. We cause ourselves even more pain. We get more disillusions. And then we make more bad decisions because we panic. And David finds himself again being a fugitive. But he actually learns from the last time he was a fugitive. Last time he was a fugitive, he took matters into his own hands. This time he doesn't. He's learned something. So the whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley and all the people moved on toward the wilderness. Notice that word wilderness. They don't know where they're going. They're going out there somewhere. And Zadok was there too and all the Levites were with them and they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now, when you read through it, you can kind of miss this very crucial point. They, the priests are the ones who are in charge of the, of the presence of God, the tabernacle, and they are actually bringing, they're all, David's leaving, let's grab the ark, let's, let's go. And so David, you know, and a lot of the people, when you brought the ark with you, you won. I mean, game over, drop the mic, Pff, it's on. You're going to fight the Philistines? Bring the ark out, bring the ark. And for a lot of people, it's like a good luck charm. Bring the ark. Come on, Philistines, bring the ark. Because you would always win when you're in the presence of God. And so when David says this, he says to Zadok, take the ark back into the city. 
I mean, for the people that heard that, they're like, you can hear this big old groan, like, oh, no. Because they knew. And what gave them confidence was that they were following the king and they were following the presence of God. And it gave the people confidence. And David sends back the ark. What in the world? For David to do that, to take the blessing of God, to take the presence of God back into the city, he's saying Absalom's in the right, we're in the wrong. I mean, what the heck? Why would you send it back? But listen to David's explanation on why he sends the ark back. If, if, if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it in his dwelling place again. If God chooses to bring me back, he will. If God wants me back, He'll bring me back because he is in control. He's the king of Israel. Wow. His world is upside down, and what does he do? He puts his trust in God. Let me repeat that. His world is upside down, and he puts his trust in God. What do we do when our world is upside down? We're on the phone. Can someone fix my problem? My plans aren't going according to what I thought. And we panic. It's a great lesson for us all. Because we will find ourselves in this situation. If not already, one day we will. And there's more. He says, but if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Can you brace yourself for that? If God says, I'm not pleased, I'm ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. Not my will, but your will, God. Where did we hear that before? Not my will, but your will. Because every time I do my will, this is David, I mess things up. Whenever I get, whenever I get my way, things go bad. He, he's starting to get going, hey, when I take matters into my own hands, I, I mess it up. And here's a lesson. David, David lost his world, yet he didn't lose his confidence in God. His world is upside down. And he doesn't lose his confidence in God. My gosh. I'm in traffic. I flip out. I'm going to be late. I, 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 what? I'm going to be late. I, I, start, I start, start yelling at the kids. Quiet, quiet. Turn the radio down. It's going to late. Quiet, quiet, quiet. Like the science is going to help you know, me go faster. It's just traffic. He doesn't reject the law. He doesn't consider himself above the law. I mean, David really understands he's a flawed man, and yet he never loses sight that he is not the king of Israel. He never loses sight. So he chose not to abandon God when it appeared that God had abandoned him. He goes, I'm not going to go to war with my son. I'm not, I'm not going to defend the city. This is not about me. Because it wasn't about David. He was like, I'm going to hold the strong fort. We're going to. It wasn't about David. God put me in place as king, and God will choose to remove me as king. And he leaves the city of Jerusalem, and he, and he leaves the ark of the covenant of God. Meanwhile, Absalom takes the city, 
but it's a hollow victory. It's hollow because he took the city, he took the palace, but he didn't take the king. So he has to kill David to be the undisputed king of Israel. He has to put his father to death. So Absalom's in the capital. He's trying to decide what to do. And, in, in, and we're introduced to another character of the Bible, Ahithophel. He was one of David's trusted advisors who very possibly was Bathsheba's grandfather. I say possibly. You've got to look that up yourself. And Ahithophel, he changes sides. Maybe because he thought Absalom was going to be the winner. Or maybe he's angered because of David's hubris toward his granddaughter. But for some reason, he changes sides and goes with Absalom. And Ahithophel is a very wise person. And he's in the palace and he welcomes Absalom. He says, I'm your advisor. I'm here. I'm here for you. Because Absalom had called him earlier. I'm here. I'll help you. And so Absalom's like, what should I do? What should I do? And Ahithophel gives him great advice. He says, first... Go upstairs in the palace, take your dad's wives, and sleep with them. Fulfills a prophecy. Second, go chase David, run him down. He's weak, he's on the run, he's panicked. Go get him, gather your men, and go now. And when you kill David, his men will follow you. Wow. Don't let David get organized. Don't let David gather people. Because Ahithophel knew if David had time, he would never, Absalom would never be able to defeat David in battle. Because Absalom's a political figure. David's a warrior. And then there was another counselor who comes in. In fact, he had left with David, and David sends him back to counter the advice of Ahithophel, because David knew Ahithophel was going to give him really good advice. So I'm going to send, who's shy? Who's shy, shy, hush, hush, eye to eye. When I read that, I was like, I couldn't help but break out in song. Love that guy. So who's shy? Shy, hush, hush. He comes to the palace. And he says this. The advice that Ahithophel gave you is not good at this time. You know your father and his men. They're fighters. And he's as fierce as a wild bear robbed of her cubs. They knew. These guys are bear hunters. They knew when a mother bear lost her cubs, how ferocious she gets. And so he's telling them, hey, you don't want to do that. Besides, your father is experienced. He will not spend the night with you. It's not like you're going to track him down and find him. Your dad is way too good for that. And Hushai says, don't rush. Take your time. Consolidate. Gather all the tribes, all the men, amass a massive army, and you should be the leader of that army, and you should go and hunt down David. And Absalom thought, that is awesome advice. And Ahithophel, at that moment, realized that the end was near. Do you know what Ahithophel does? He said goodbye. <laughs> he says goodbye. He goes back home, puts his affairs in order, and then he hangs himself. We just, I mean, we're, this, is, this is the most incredible story you're ever, like I said, forget cable, get in the Bible. Get in the story. 
He kills himself. Because he knew. He knew what was going to happen. And so David reaches a city called Mahaniah. And, he, and, he, and, 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 and uh, Absalom has his army amassed. And he's marching in on him. And so David defends himself. And then the people that are in the city. And David does something very smart. He breaks his army into thirds. And he puts a different commander in charge of each army. And then he gives them explicit instructions. He says this. Be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king gives us, giving this order concerning Absalom to each of his command. He goes, I know it's war. I know it's going to get chaotic. But for my sake, would you please be gentle with my son? If you see Absalom, take him alive and bring him to me. And David's general also insisted that David not go into battle because David wanted to fight. But he goes, no, go, no, you got to stay back. So David has to stay back and watch his soldiers confront his son. And the, and the text tells us this. The battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. Absalom had superior numbers, but they meant nothing when you fought in the forest of Ephraim. It was like, picture the battle of Thermopylae. The Persians and the, and the Spartans, it was like that. Because in the, for, in the forest, numbers didn't matter. Communication mattered. Experience mattered. Organization mattered. That's what mattered in the jungle. And they're forest fighting. And the Bible says this. There Israel's troops were routed by David's men. And the casualties that day were great. 20,000 men. The battle spread out throughout the whole countryside, and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. You know when I read that? I, was, I thought trees were like, Roar! Lord of the Rings. But it wasn't. Low hanging branches, massive roots, soft spots in the mud that tripped up the horses. People, soldiers were just getting injured and injured and taken off the battlefield because they're injured. And if you read the story of details, Absalom had this. He was known for his hair. He had this amazing hair. Better hair than Gio. Like thick and curly. <laughs> super awesome hair. And long. So as the battle's fighting, Absalom's in these low-hanging branches. His, his hair, he's just trying to escape. His hair gets stuck in the branches. And his donkey goes. And he's hanging by his hair. And then Joab's and his troops... See Absalom. And this is the commander that David put in charge. And I don't know what Joab was thinking, because Absalom had burned his field. I don't know what he was thinking, but when he saw Absalom hanging there, he took three daggers and put him in his chest. And you thought he was done by that, but he wasn't done. He tells his armor bearers, get him. So he spear him. And just to slaughter Absalom. Right after David says, be gentle with my son. Joab did not listen. And so when David hears that Absalom is dead, he mourns. He mourns so much. David is so in anguish that his own soldiers think that they lost the battle. They're afraid to celebrate the victory. Because David's crying so much. And so Joab walks over to David and goes, David, 
what's the matter with you, man? It's almost as if you wish Absalom was alive and your, and your men are dead. They just brought you back the kingdom. And so David goes, oh. So you better get out there or you're going to lose all of them. So David gets out there and he begins to celebrate with his men. But again, it's a hollow victory. Because David loved his son Absalom. He had dreams for Absalom. He had dreams for Amnon. So he returns to Jerusalem as king. And his world would never, ever be the same. And nine years later, David dies at the age of 70. You know, the biographers of, the, of First and Second Samuel and all the chronicles and all the narrative accounts, they don't hide David's failures. And the, the takeaway from this account is that David's dreams didn't come true. Yet he didn't lose his confidence in God. Despite his flaws, despite his failures, he didn't lose his confidence in God. And this is very important because I think we all fall into this, this trap. The foundation of our faith is not answered prayers. I'm going to say it again because, you know, we, 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 you, got, you got to get this. The foundation of our faith is not answered prayers or happily ever after endings. It's always a mistake to wrap our faith in God's fulfillment of our dreams or our answered prayers. It's always a mistake. Because one will say, my dreams came too. Another is like, mine didn't. There is no God. Don't wrap your faith up in your dreams. Because reality is greater than our plans. Reality was greater it's okay to hope and have hope. But when your dreams come down, do you lose your confidence in God? And that's why the story is so powerful for all of us. We can so easily lose our confidence in God. And David's world is turned upside down. Because dreams that, that don't come true or prayers that don't get answered say nothing about the presence they say nothing about the goodness. They say nothing about the faithfulness of God. It says nothing about his presence or lack of activity. I mean, if David could talk to us this morning, he would say, you'd be, you're, you'd be mistaken to assume that you, you're forsaken. You'd be mistaken to assume you're forsaken. Because David would say, with all the highs and lows of my life, God was with me. And we would be, and we would do well, and we would be wise to join David in that conviction. It's an extraordinary conviction that God is good, and I put my hope in him. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your love for God. That concludes our worship service.